distinct pleasure of being with Dr. Mary Skopik, who is the executive director of Lakeside Labs. Many of you know this is where we're holding the Okaboji Writers Retreat. However, that won't be the main topic of our discussion <laughs> today. Um, Mary is one of these unusual leaders who is trained as a scientist and you know we all have these stereotypes of scientists and they're, <laughs> they're introverts and they're behind a microscope and you can do all that. I can I can introvert with the best of them. <laughs> <laughs> but you also run a major facility, which includes uh, motel rooms, mm -hmm. meeting rooms. Fortunately, you don't do weddings. No, unless, no. Um, but um, and the donor. Uh, work that you have to do or get to do or whatever the app word is and you're just you're my experience of you is you're amazing at this job and I'm so glad to have connected with you through the through the writer's retreat experience but let's talk about the Lakeside Labs and why what distinguishes it from all the other I, I don't know if attraction is the right word but all the other opportunities people have to experience life on the lake what makes it different you know i think lakeside i always say it's where state park meets museum meets educational facility and so we have 147 acres of basically natural area right on west lake um i don't even know how many linear feet of shoreline we have but it's very much still in a natural state. So if you want to see prairie, much as it looked like back in, um, well, the pro property was purchased in 1909. And so, you know, if you want to see prairie and woodland and native um, habitat, you know, Lakeside's a great place to come see that. And so I think people come here to see Iowa's natural history as it was, you know, for, for millennia. Um, but then on top of that, we have these historic buildings. So uh, five stone labs that were built by the Civilian Conservation Corps in the 1930s. Um, and they also showcase our natural history. So these boulders that were brought in by glaciers um, used as building materials for the, the stone labs. And then, you know, the layering on top of that is just all this wonderful education that's happening here. So people can come out and take in a lecture, they can take in a Wild Wednesday, which is a hands-on educational experience. Um, but we have you know, K-12 students coming through here as, as well as college students and adults learning about nature. You know, I brought some friends through, Richard and I brought some friends through the other day and you were talking about some exciting breakthrough uh, discoveries that were happening here that have implications for, uh, for our health. Right. Tell me about those, tell us. Yeah, so um, there's a couple of things. One of the things I think is really important for people to realize is that basic research is important. Um, obviously, you know, we, we understand applied research that when we learn something that helps humanity, um, but that all, always starts with the basic research. So just understanding the world around us. And Iowa um, Lakeside Lab has been the diatom center of research for 60 years. Explain diatoms. Yeah, sure. So diatoms are single-celled organisms. I think everybody knows what algae is. So if you look at a lake or an ocean or a stream, you see green stuff floating around. Um, that's usually algae. Diatoms are a specific type of algae, um, but they have a silica body to them. So they create their own biological glass. And in doing so, they are structurally very sound. 
Um, what's interesting about them then, so we learn about the taxa of these diatoms. We understand where they form and, and all the ecology of those diatoms. The applied side of that is that in human bodies, um, bone replacement has become an issue. Um, you think about people that have either an injury or cancer or something that takes a piece of bone away from a human. Um, we can actually use diatoms to replace that bone. Hmm. So they've started to do 3D printers where if you had a scan of, of say a hole in your arm that was a bone um, biopsy or something, you can use a 3D printer that basically creates a resin um, and then you can inoculate that with diatoms. And diatoms are really cool because the, the spaces in between the diatom um, cell pieces are so small that viruses can't really get in there. So they um, can repel a lot of pathogens and organisms that would cause disease. Um, but they are also rough enough that when you take that resin and inoculate it with diatoms, and then if you take away the resin, you're left with basically a bone fragment that you can then put in someone's body. Um, and it's great because they don't really reject, uh, human bodies don't reject them. Um, people have been playing around with silica beads for a long time, but they have a really high rejection rate. Um, and these diatoms don't, they're a, they're a natural substance that we could basically create new human bone um, out of. And, and that's just one example of how diatoms can be used uh, for, you know, in, in different ways. Um, they can be used in filtration. So uh, West Obeer, who brews here in Okaboji, used to use diatoms as a filtration system. Um, because again, you have these very small spaces. What? Yeah, if you want to filter all the junk out of water um, or out of beer, um, you can use the diatoms as a filtration mechanism. Um, and diatoms, as people may or may not know, have been used as a natural insecticide for a long time. That silica body of a diatoms is really sharp. And so if you were to sprinkle diatom or diatomaceous earth around your foundation of your home, an insect crawling over that basically gets cut to bits. Um, and so it's a great natural insecticide. Um, so there's a, there's a whole bunch of uses of diatoms that people don't know about, um, but it all starts with just understanding those organisms and, uh, and where you find them and, and what universes. Hmm. So walk me through, if you can, how some discovery like that took place. Are these by scientists who are here year round? Are they visiting students? Do you, do you recall how that, I'm gonna call it a discovery. Yeah, came out. yeah. so the diatom class started 60 years ago with um, a professor out of Iowa State who um, by the name of, of Jim Dodd. And you know he really wanted to bring students up to Lakeside and, and start to look at diatoms and then uh, one of his students was Gene Stormer, who was from the Milford area. So he grew up in the lakes and he really just wanted to expand this class. So what's unusual about Lakeside is we don't have faculty that are here as faculty members at Lakeside year round. Um, those faculty members are here for a class. So from one to four weeks, and then um, they may come up and do research, but the faculty are coming from around the country as well as the students are coming from around the world. And so we've had students from, I think, 17 different countries come and learn about diatoms. Oftentimes they bring their own uh, samples. So they've brought samples from Iran and Iraq, they've brought them from Pakistan, they've brought them from all over the world. 
Um, and then the community of scientists helped to identify those diatoms. And over time of the 20,000 different species that are out there, um, we've started to identify that the researchers have started, started to identify them. Wow, that's fascinating. So I have a million questions, but I, I'm gonna start with one that I was thinking about this morning with you and preface it by saying, if I'm in my painting watercolor mode, I see things differently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I see shadows. I see color differently than when I'm just walking around. How does a scientist see the world? I mean, do you just kind of walk around and think about the science <laughs> of the leaves? or the, I mean, how do, how do you think? You know, that's a great question. I think for me personally, I'm usually asking why. So when I see the lake is um, maybe murky today, why is it murky? Uh, we just had a really interesting, it, for lack of a better term, a purple algae bloom that happened in a drainage to Big Spirit Lake. And first of all, I mean, the colors are outstanding. Yeah, it looks um, like a lavender field. It looks like a lavender field. And me, I'm thinking, why? What's going on there? Mm -hmm. I know that those algae use sulfur instead of oxygen in their body processes. So I'm thinking, why isn't there oxygen? Why is there sulfur there? But I'm asking, I'm trying to understand the world around me by connecting those bits. Um, why do I see these trees here, but not over there? Um, why do I see lichen on maybe the south side of a, a tree and not on the north side? Um, so I'm constantly asking why, what's happening, what's changed, um, trying to predict what's going to happen in the future. Um, in my mind's eye, because I'm an environmental scientist, I'm trying to look at it all at once. Um, I think there's some people, biologists, that may look at a, a flower and they're diving in on the um, pieces of that flower. You know, um, I saw Mike Delaney was on here. Uh, he posted a picture of a uh, blazing star. And, you know, some people are looking in on those very specific components of the blazing star. Um, Tell me about the blazing star. Just a beautiful purple. Um, uh, looks like a, I don't, I don't even know. It looks like a staff to some degree with purple flowers on it. Mm -hmm. um, and some of those people are looking at that flower and thinking about you know, um, identifying it, its history, its environment where it wants to live. They're looking at the biology of that, that plant particularly. I tend to think about, well, right now I'm seeing a lot of purple plants and we'll transition into more yellow plants based on the seasons that we're seeing. Um, and I'm thinking about, well, we're coming out of a drought. So what's that doing to the overall ecosystem? So I tend to be much more holistic in the way that I'm looking at the world and other people tend to be very you know, focused in on a particular plant or animal. So I think scientists come at it a variety of different ways, but always kind of asking the why. What's going on here? What formed this? Well, I do want to talk to you about that purple, purple pink field in on Spirit Lake because I saw pictures of it last night, and it and some somebody on Twitter said it was you know that Barbie is taking their marketing <laughs> campaign too far, but it really does look like mm -hmm. that Barbie, yeah, Barbie pink. Um, what, what does cause that? So it's a, a particular type of, of um, cyanobacterium. So essentially what's happening, there's different kinds of bacteria that use different mechanisms, again, in their, their respiration and their, their um, body function. And a lot of organisms, humans involved, use oxygen for our respiration. Um, so we're using that oxygen to do the body processes. If we didn't have oxygen, we would just die, right? That's, everybody knows that. 
Um, for these particular bacteria, when there isn't oxygen, they can use sulfur instead of oxygen. So they're in a low oxygen environment. It's been very dry. It's been very stagnant for a long time and there's no more oxygen in that water. And so now they're using the sulfur as a, as a mechanism to do their body processes. The, in, in doing that, um, they can outcompete other algae because they, they can use sulfur and other people, other algae can't. And so, and the color is just usually a byproduct of um, their other processes. So cyanobacteria, blue-green algae, um, will use a blue pigment. Uh, these guys are using a purple pigment. And because they've bloomed, you see a lot of that purple pigment. So it's not necessarily a bad thing, um, but it is certainly eye-opening when you see, like there is an oxygen there, so they're using sulfur and these guys are happy because they can outcompete all the other algae that are out there. Is that a product of runoff or what, what creates this? You know, really, I think it's, it's a water body that's been very stagnant. Um, up until last night or two nights ago, we hadn't had rain in a long time. It's been very hot. Um, and so that, that water body, oxygen needs to be replenished. And if it's stagnant and hot, a lot of times the oxygen levels really deplete. And it was such that all the other organisms in that water body had just consumed the oxygen. So it's not necessarily a, a pollution thing, um, but it's more just we've depleted all the oxygen because we haven't had inflows of rain and water. Um, and it's just sort of sat there and stagnated for a long time. I'm going to open this up to questions from our group. Please feel free to raise your hand. Let's see. Uh, I have a lot of people on who are hiding their video for some <laughs> reason. Another, you're hiding, you're hiding. It's okay. It's okay. But um, while they're thinking of a question, I'm sure Laura will have one <laughs> in any, any second now. Um, we got technical really fast, so it doesn't have to be. I have some. No <laughs> I have some noise in the background here. Sorry about that. Um, well, I guess <laughs> I don't know. I'm a little. I'm pretty pessimistic. I mean, what? Why? What is it going to take for Iowans to? demand or that, that we have swimmable water. I mean, I wouldn't swim in any body of water in the state of Iowa right now. I grew up, I like swimming in lakes. I mean, there's not one, I've never taken my kids swimming in a lake anywhere in Iowa. So I guess I'm just, I mean, is there any reason for us to be hopeful? It just seems like the, the state and local leaders are just, most of them just have their heads in the sand about what's going on. You know, I, I think that's a, I think that's an interesting question, Laura. I would say um, a couple of things. And I, I definitely have a, for better or worse, kind of an Okaboji perspective now. Um, one of the things that I think is, I, I have always recreated in Iowa's waters. Um, I grew up you know, swimming in Big Spirit and I grew up paddling um, on rivers that some people probably wouldn't. Um, I believe that I, it's important for people to get out on the water, whether now swimming, full body immersion. I wouldn't put my head necessarily in um, different water bodies, but I think it's important for people to get out and enjoy nature um, and our lakes and rivers as a way of understanding and appreciating them. It's, it's hard to value something if you never interact with it. Um, that said, I realize that some rivers are, are more challenging. A lot of our lakes though are getting better. Um, and the Okabojis, I think, are a really great example of when you come together to put money and conservation on the landscape, you can see changes. So, sorry, I'm kind of like out of the picture. Um, 
In 23 years of plant monitoring, this is a, a lake monitoring program that's used volunteers. In 23 years, we have seen dramatic increases in water quality. Um, phosphorus here in the Okabojis, okay. including, so West Okaboji is always the, the best of the best, and we all know that. But on East Okaboji and on Spirit Lake, we've seen phosphorus levels decrease by almost half in 23 years. Um, we've seen water clarity dramatically increasing. And that's directly, I think, related to the fact that when people have valued the waters here, which they do, the property values are high, um, the community really cares about water quality, um, we've seen a very impressive investment in conservation, permanent conservation, wetlands, prairies. Um, you know, if you drive around Dickinson County, I bet you probably see the county with the most native or natural habitat. People have invested. Now, that's not to say that we don't still have corn and we don't have urban areas, but people decided that they want to protect these lakes. And in 23 years, we've seen some pretty dramatic improvements um, to the point where, you know, West Okaboji is, um, you know, you don't have a second disc string long enough to see the, the end of it anymore. Um, I think that can be translated to other parts of the country. Um, I think it can be translated to other parts of the state that if we really invest in value our waters, if we get people in Des Moines, for example, $125 million right now that's going to go into the Icon Water Trails. You better believe if we're going to put $100 into that water trail that people are going to want to be able to canoe on it, kayak on it, swim in it. Um, they want to build houses next to it. And so I think that some of that's going to drive hopefully better water quality. Um, and the thing about like the Icon Water Trails as well as what's happening up here in Okaboji is it's cross-cut political boundaries, it's cross-cut, um, you know, different demographics. Um, you know, one of the things we've had a hard time is an environmental community is talking outside of our usual suspects. Um, and, you know, we, we do see people here coming to, we have a conference this week. Um, people are gonna come to this conference in the Blue Water Festival from different walks of life. Um, and talk about water quality because we understand the value of that. And I see Kirk's got his hand up. Mm -hmm. um, he understands the value of <laughs> clean water up here. So I'm gonna I'm gonna let Kirk ask his question. Kirk, Kirk you're muted, so you'll need to unmute, and then you are the first questioner. By the way, while you're doing, oh, yeah, okay, go ahead. No, no, hi, hi, Mary. Uh, hi. You know, I think Mary's spot on. In John Schissel would probably agree with me. When I was a kid up here, there were spots on East Lake Okaboji you didn't go. I mean, the, the algae, the green was so thick, you felt like you could walk on it. Right. And I think over the last five to 10 years, our lakes up here have dramatically changed. Now, again, part of it is, you know, the zebra mussels, you know, there's been some species that have created situations that maybe aren't the best, but I think you would be amazed at how many people, uh, and I'm going to just speak for the Okabojis, are, um, are really conscious about it. I mean, we just, you see fertilizer in all the stores up here has no phosphorus in it. Uh, you don't get that run out. Uh, you know, you guys know I jump in the lake every morning. I always have, and I probably always will. And, you know, I'm still kicking. So, uh, it, I, I think there is hope. I, I guess where I'm coming from this is, uh, Laura, I think if you can mobilize the people, 
now I can't speak for the Mississippi and the Missouri and you know some of the huge bodies like that, but I think some of the inland lakes uh, are being taken care of, and, and to a large degree, it comes from people leaded, leaded, lead, <laughs> whatever that word is. Uh, like Mary, you know, first of all, you got to know what you got and then what can you do about it? So uh, I, I don't think you should be that negative. I think that, I think, I think there's light at the end of the tunnel on all this. There are obviously competing interests. The, the, the wealth uh, gathered around this lake is a pretty powerful lobby, but out in the real world, the wealth of the farming community overshadows pretty much it everybody living in, in small towns, rural Iowa and downstream. How do you see, how do you see that coming together? Yeah. I mean, I think it, it is easy to say in Okaboji, there's a lot of wealth and that when we decide to get something done, we can get it done. I mean, Kirk mm -hmm. knows very well, you know, when, when people want to band together, it, and it's a small community. Um, but I will say, and, and again, I worked for the DNR many years before I came to Iowa Lakeside Lab. Um, a former DNR director told me, who was on the Environmental Protection Commission, um, you know, there were days when there was nobody at, a, at an EPC meeting. So nobody came and we passed rules and nobody showed up and it was very quiet. And that those days are no longer the case, that people are, you know, talking about things, um, you know, we do have these environmental groups. We do have people talking about water quality. Um, and when I think about living in the rural environment, uh, your water resources are critical to that. Um, you want to be able to enjoy nature out in those rural areas. And so in some ways, um, it, it is easy to be pessimistic, but I also think that you have the ability to talk to neighbors. You have an ability to, to think about how to um, forge a path forward. Um, and so, you know, I look at Storm Lake as an example. Um, you know, Storm Lake's been working hard to improve Storm Lake for a long time. It's been a bit of an uphill battle for them, but that community's really banded around that water resource. Um, I think one of the keys that we need to take away is when we talk about water quality is this very large amorphous thing. It's hard for people to wrap their heads around it. Um, we do need to think about local. We do need to think about making it real for people. Um, when we used to talk about the Gulf of Mexico hypoxia issue, it felt very far away for your average person in Iowa. It's like, well, that's so far away. What about here? Well, you know, I think as we've tried to bring that message home, don't you want to be able to, to recreate in the Raccoon River or the Des Moines River or the Iowa River, um, you know, Lizard Creek, some of these other water bodies? Um, and I, and I think that there is this notion of, we understand that there's a brain drain in Iowa that our young people are leaving. Um, they're picking where they wanna live based on the environment. Um, my students all wanna go to Colorado because they see tremendous environmental um, opportunities that they can go enjoy nature. Um, Weeds legal too. <laughs> that too. Um, but you know, I think they're they're picking where they want to live because they understand that they can work remotely, and if they can work remotely, they want to be able to play and and work and live. Um, Iowa could capitalize on that. And when we think about climate change, um, the the Midwest, including Iowa, will probably see the least amount of change in some of the models. We still will have water, and so we're going to be a place where people want to want to come back to. Um, because there's water here and there's, you know, opportunity here. So 
I think we need to kind of reverse that narrative of come back, support the state and, you know, try to find ways that we can engage um, different, different entities. And I know, you know, talking with farmers, it's challenging right now in the sense that uh, if you're living on rented land, you know, we've got to engage um, landowners that maybe live in other states. Um, the population's aging and there's challenges there as well. Um, and I think we just have to kind of reflect some of those policies in, in new ideas, um, thinking about different crops, different opportunities there. Okay, good. Kate Holt, we have uh, your hand raised. John, if you would do me a favor and go on mute, because I think there's a little background noise coming in. I'm doing this from an iPad. Ordinarily, I could mute you, but I can't figure out how to do that from here. Thank you. Kate, your hand is raised. Yeah, I, uh, can oh. you hear me? I can mm -hmm. hear you, but you don't look like Kate. <laughs> no, no, she's watching TV. <laughs> and uh, who, are we, who are we speaking with? Uh, John. Hi, John. Hi. Uh, a couple of years ago, there was curly leaf pondweed in the north end of Okaboji, East Okaboji. What's the status with that? So the curly leaf um, pondweed is still in East Okaboji. Uh, in fact, we have samples of um, sediment that show that curly leaf's been here since the 40s. And, you know, the, as the water quality from the 40s, the water got more turbid, more sediment. Um, harder for light to get into it. The curly leaf kind of back, you know, died back. Um, ironically, as the water has cleared up, the curly leaf has come roaring back because now you get light penetration into more of the water column, which allows the curly leaf to grow. Um, not been great for boating to have the curly leaf, but it's still here. Um, we did have Eurasian water milfoil, which is another invasive species, show up in uh, East Okaboji last year. The DNR did a very extensive herbicide treatment um, in East Okaboji, which eradicated, we think, the, the Eurasian water milfoil in East Okaboji and also knocked back the curly leaf. Um, but it, it is, I think, here to stay. Um, one of the things that we're going to see is that that curly leaf probably will get knocked back, did get knocked back this year. We'll come back to some degree next year and we'll just keep having to treat it and work on it. Um, you know, you have to manage it because mm -hmm. Clear Lakes have vegetation. And so for recreation to occur here, we're, we're going to have to continue to manage those, um, that, that vegetation in the lake kind of forever uh, to some degree. But it's, it's kind of a, it's the downside of a good story, which is with clear water, you get vegetation. Um, and curly leaf came, roar, came roaring back for sure. Is that, is, is that pond weed uh, just in the north end of East Ogoboji or is it spread to the south. It's, it's throughout the entire Great Lakes system. Um, I'm on Miller's Bay of West Okaboji. If I went out today, I'd find some curly, well, not today because it, it's a cool season plant. Um, but if I went out in, in May, I would see curly leaf in Miller's Bay. Um, it just can't get the dominance that it does in East Lake because we have a very nice native population of vegetation in, in Miller's Bay. So um, it's in Spirit Lake, it's in East Okaboji, West Okaboji. Um, throughout the, the lake systems up here in Northwest Iowa, it, it just doesn't, it has outcompeted the native vegetation in East Okaboji, um, but it is, it is throughout the entire system. Interesting. Hey, does that, does yeah, that thanks. Okay, thanks. Bob Leonard, you're up next. You are on mute. There you go. Hi, Bob. Hi. Um, 
John, who was just speaking, um, John, I think I have your old title right, former uh, assistant director of uh, for the Corps of Engineers at Lake Red Rock. And as I've been listening to all this bipartisan optimism, I'm, I mean, I, it, from where we sit, I don't think we see a lot of that. And if sort of if we could clean up Lake Red Rock, everything else is going to be fine. Do you have any thoughts on, um, I'm, I love their optimism, but I guess I'm not quite so optimistic given the uh, Republicans in leadership in the uh, legislature. What are your thoughts? That's me or Bob or I, Either, but I mean, John has a unique perspective and I just thought he might have something in addition to what he just asked, if that's okay. Yeah. Sure. John, are you with us? Yeah, I'm I'm here. Well, it's two entirely different ecosystems. Red Rocks a, drains 12,000 square miles into it and the Great Lakes are a natural feature. So it's tough to say it's oranges to oranges, but they do share some common problems. It's just Red Rock is an idiot light for the whole state as far as runoff, non-point runoff, both with uh, sediment and nutrients. So much harder to control. Yeah, I think that's I think that's definitely true. And you know, I'm I I guess I choose optimism because I think that um, it's important to find solutions that work across a, a variety of different boundaries. Um, and I think it can be done. You know, one of the things that we're seeing, so one of the worst lakes when I was working for DNR, one of the worst lakes we had for blue-green algae blooms, toxic blooms, was Black Hawk Lake. And this was a lake that um you know, I'd show up and there was this scum of algae on top. It smelled terrible. Um, they put significant dollars into restoring that lake. And now, again, it's, it's on the upswing in terms of water quality. Um, but it's, it's an example of where trying to take bites that are doable. Um, Red Rock's a large system, Sailorville, Coralville, these are very large systems. So I'm always thinking about what are the bites that we can take that hopefully over time scale up. Um, I am excited about things like cover crop, because I think that with the intense rainstorms that we get, cover crop is critical to securing the soil and helping with nutrients um, in a time when the soil is very vulnerable in the early spring. There aren't very few people adopting that. Yeah, and I think that cover crops are one of those things where um, I, I once had a, a farmer in Indiana say to me, I don't know why Iowa hasn't gotten on board. Like, many of us are not using um, fertilizer essentially because our cover provides all the fertilizer. Um, now there's some technical things that we've had to overcome in Iowa. Yes, we're a little bit colder, um, but the farm, so if you wanna put a plug in for the Prairie Lakes Conference, we're gonna go out to John Betcher's farm in, um, by Spirit Lake here on Wednesday. And John has adapted his equipment to actually apply cover crops in the, in the spring. So he's putting, he's planting his cover crops in the spring they grow and then they get kind of overtaken by the corn. And then when he harvests the corn, the cover crops grow again. So he's kind of jumped the, the issue of, well, you don't get them to germinate in Northern Iowa. So we just have to build a better mousetrap with, could we do something that allows us to plant them earlier? Um, and there's some other kinds of 
institutional things with cover crops. There's maybe some, maybe some yield drag initially. Um, but I think there's some benefits. And I think if we can continue to kind of get that out there in the landscape um, and to think about diversification as well, um, more perennial um, kinds of things. And, and some of that's, there's these institutional things that move very slowly. Um, but I think there's some models that could potentially work. And so that's why I can be a little bit more optimistic because I can find the things that are working well and say, if we could scale that up, if we could find a policy that allows us to scale that up, um, I think we have some real potential there. And you know, certainly there's, that's not to say that there aren't issues that need to be addressed. Um, but I'm always like, find the thing that works and just keep pushing it. Just keep replicating that as best as possible. And, um, and I think people are surprised when I say East Okaboji has come a long way in 23 years. Yeah. 23 years is not a very long time in a lake ecosystem. Um, it shows that when you really put a lot of investment, um, you're going to see some success. And I think we haven't seen successes or heard about successes in a way that makes people think that we can make change. And I think we need to change our mindset too about being very targeted and putting a lot of resources into fixing something. Um, you know, we kind of put a chicken in every pot and that doesn't necessarily maybe dilutes what we see in terms of improvement. Um, we need to really get some good improvement to then replicate that in a, in a meaningful way. So pardon my ignorance, but I just saw in the email from the Friends of Lakeside today, mm -hmm. uh, tour to the Betcher, Betcher Farm. Yep, Betcher Farm. How does, how are, are stories written about that? Have it, it, would you write a guest post that I sure. could put in my column? Because I think as, as this is my, my big thing is that as, legacy media has shrunk. Right. Stories like that aren't told so people don't know. Yeah, and I, and I think there's many stories. I would love to write that. And I think there's many stories to what John's doing. One is John is an innovator and he's thinking creatively. I have a problem with climate in Northern Iowa. How do I do cover crops? So he, he modified his own equipment. He came up with a solution. The other story there is his daughter wanted to come back to the land. So he's got the next generation who, you know, largely have fled the land. She wants to be a rancher, not a rancher. She wants to raise cattle on, on her land. And so she's working really hard to learn from her dad, but then continue to innovate. And as we want young people to be on the land, we want young people to come to agriculture. I think that there's a really important story there. Um, my other favorite farmer is Kate Mendenhall, who is raising pastured pigs, um, near the watershed, near, near the lake. Um, so she's raising these pigs in a pasture and they move around and, um, you know, it, it's a, it's a small scale of operation for pasture raised pigs, but you know, for, for those of us who, um, want to know our farmer, she's been great. If we could replicate that model. Uh, I love that. You know, I just read Beth Hoffman, Hoffman's book, um, again, thinking about, you know, the institutional barriers for her to bring animals back to the landscape. Well, where do you get them processed? So, you know, we need to see more local um, butchers and processors so that you, you know, someone like Kate doesn't have to take her animals to, you know, Ames to get them processed. They should be able to be processed locally. So there's a lot of, of kind of sub stories in there as mm -hmm. well that um, if Kate and Emily come back to the land, how do we then support them in terms of um, having, having meat processing so that they could sell their, their product? 
Interesting. Uh, by the way, Beth Hoffman's coming for the writers' Good. retreat in September, and I'll be sure to. Uh, maybe she can go go with you out. Yeah, to that'd be great. Farm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cheryl Tevis is one of our Iowa writers' collaborative columnists who wrote for Successful Farming for, for right. many years, and she might have an interest in in and Mary Swander. Mary Swander would, yeah. would love to know about this too. And Bob Leonard. I mean, we got we got a raffle. We just have to, I think, get these stories out and. Um, but still, reality is right. Little little Davids and big big <laughs> Goliaths are are real. Right, and you know the you talk to anybody from Iowa State, and the kinds of alternative farming issues aren't even allowed to be discussed at Iowa State. Do you have pressures here with the Regents Institution? Well, and I think um, not the same pressures because our research is really again that that very basic research and helping to um, helps help environmental science students get practical skills. Um, so we don't feel those same pressures. But again, I think one of the things we ought to be talking about is, you know, California electrical engines. What does that do to the ethanol industry? You know, are people looking ten years down the road and say if ethanol is no longer um, <laughs> going to be the biggest thing on the, the block. Um, what's going to replace that? So can we be looking at diversity of crops because ethanol is no longer going to be the, the mainstay? Um, I think we have to be trying to push some of that and be creative. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, it, it is tough when that research is, is, um, is challenging and, you know, to some degree funded by certain entities. So, you know, if you're the ethanol industry isn't probably going to fund research in not doing ethanol. Um, So we need other people to fund that research because I mean, you know, you're going to fund your own industry. Um, So there does need to be some, some knowledge and some recognition that um, we need some other money to come to the table to look at these creative solutions. And, um, but we are fortunate. We are um, outside that fray for the most part. Good. Good. You know, I had the, the honor of going to Al-Qaeda. Mm-hmm. Richard and I visited Larry Stone mm-hmm. and he took us to the headwaters that, that are so controversial right. yeah. because the DNR allowed this cattle producing outfit to actually bring the cattle right up to where the where the headwaters of, of this creek are, are beginning. And I'm thinking, how does that happen? I mean, it, you look at this and you look at the location and you look, it's running downhill. And I am not a scientist, especially not a writing scientist, <laughs> but I took one look at that and thought, how did anybody think that, that was okay? Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that that's challenging, I think, about farming, um, one is that it's obviously very place-based. So if this is the place that I own and I want to do this activity. I'm kind of, these are the cards that I'm dealt in terms of if I've got karst or, you know, a high quality water body, that's the card that I'm dealt. Um, again, one of the things I think we have to think about is how we reverse those cards a little bit. So there's a property, and in, in Kirk knows this as well, um, the, the upper part of the North Shore of Big Spirit, um, there is a large wetland that's essentially farmed. And it's, it's basically driving a lot of water towards Big Spirit Lake. And, and you know anybody looking at it says that should be a wetland, but it's currently being farmed. But that's the land that that farmer has. So what's happening um, is, could we do a swap? So if we buy this property over there, which is 
better for farming and not in a wetland. Um, and then we swap out this. So, you know, can we get you farmland here and turn this back into the wetland? So everybody's winning because now we're protecting this wetland and you're still able to farm. And I think thinking about things a little bit more creatively like that. So if we don't want you to do it there, what's the swap we can create? Can we move you away from this landscape that's vulnerable into a less vulnerable landscape and then provide that protection? Um, because right now it's like, if that's your property, that's what you're going to do. Um, and yeah, uh, the whole permitting and regulation thing is, is definitely um, challenging. And there's been lots of, of issues uh, around the state in terms of, you know, if you set a threshold here, people stay under the threshold and just, you know, how to regulate some of these things has been very challenging. But I just go back to, can we think about um, being more creative in where those activities happen in a less vulnerable landscape? I interviewed um, Neil Hamilton last week, whose new book is called Listening to the River. It's a, I don't know if you've had it. I've not, I've not seen it yet. Well, yeah, it's, a, it's a wonderful construct. He has the river actually personified, speaking to him, kind of creative. Um, but in the course of the conversation, I said, Neil, you know, there's this group over here and that group over here. And there just seem to be hundreds of little environmental groups, water quality groups, you know, this and that. And then the recreators. But it doesn't seem like there's that much intercommunication. And he said, well, as a matter of fact, there's going to be a summit mm -hmm. in, at Drake mm -hmm. in November. And I assume you're going to be a part of that. Mm -hmm. And what do you, if you could wave a magic wand and have a desired oh, outcome, <laughs> what would it be? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Cause I think we did see this pr proliferation of environmental groups. And so river focused or watershed focused or um, garbage or whatever. And I, I do think that there's a need to be thinking a little bit more comprehensively. Um, and so I think even just getting people to, yeah, work across those boundaries, um, you know, think about collaborating in a way that um, maximizes our, our human potential. Um, one of the things that happens is, I mean, I, I at one point was probably on five or six different boards, <laughs> um, you know, and you're kind of running around like, well, what if I only picked one or two boards and we work together in a mm -hmm. way that, again, maximize that. Um, because you can spend up a lot of energy in human capital by, you know, just trying to be, in, be a part of everything and involved. Um, so I'm not being very, very eloquent, but I think hopefully we start to think about where we can work in commonalities and mm -hmm. leverage that, that brain power and that know-how, um, as opposed to working in our little silos. And I, I hope that that happens. I do too. I do too. So we've talked a lot about water and the environment and that sort of thing, which has been the foundational uh, uh, of this of this organization. But you're doing all kinds of other outreach. Let's mm -hmm. talk about that. One of the things that I really love to do is get kids involved in going outside. Um, you know, and again, I can look at a number of people on this uh, this podcast and know that they've gotten their kids and grandkids outside and really what I see is a lot of kids that did not grow up in nature, right. um, that don't have a grandparent or a parent that is, feels competent in nature, even in Iowa, which isn't especially wild, people feel uncomfortable putting their kids in a canoe or kayak. Um, oh, no. And it's, it's funny because I, in the early days of Project Aware, which was a canoe river cleanup that the DNR sponsored, I, 
second or third year, I took my two and a half, three-year-old grandson and I looked at Nate Hogavine and I said, can I put Connor in this kayak with you or canoe with you? And Nate was like, ah, he's a, he's a child. Why would you put him in? I'm like, well, you're a good, you know, you're a good paddler. Um, and I think it freaked him out. But at the same time, like, how is Connor ever going to be in love with being near water if he doesn't ever get to go near water? How is he going to value these resources? And so one of the things Lakeside does is it gets kids out in nature and we help them manage their fear of bugs and wind and itchy things and scary snakes and all the things that, that they've kind of been taught by society are terrifying. And I'm like, snakes in Iowa aren't really very terrifying. Um, helping them get over those fears uh, and get them exploring and engaging with curiosity and, you know, asking questions and wondering why the world is the way it is, um, asking good science questions. I'm super excited about, I love seeing those kids just blossom and, you know, suddenly they want to know why, you know, there's a million frogs jumping around. They want to know what's going on. And that I think is really exciting because without those kids doing that in these ages, well, why in the world would they ever want to do that as right. a career or helping the environment as they grow older? Um, and so that's been really exciting for us. And I, I can't get enough pictures of little kids with the, you know, the little critter up to their face or the magnifying <laughs> glass up to their face. Seeing that is just my favorite thing. And I love the college students and I love the adult learners, but seeing that spark um, is really, really valuable. And I love, love, love that because they don't get that. They don't mm -hmm. get that, you know, and, and uh, the worst thing we could ever do in science is give kids a worksheet and say, do a worksheet. I'm like, no more worksheets ever again. Um, it's just not the way you should learn science. And so we, we, it's hands-on immersive. And that's, that's what I love about Lakeside. How can people participate? Let's say folks here have a grandchild or child or whatever they'd want to have. Yeah. So we have nature camps. So we have camps from four-year-olds all the way up to high school seniors um, for uh, a week, a uh, couple days. So, you know, the, the little kids come out, they're all day camps um, and we value, you know, people can come bring their kids. Um, you know, the older, the older kids can come and we've got a scavenger hunt so they can walk the property um, but really encourage people to either take those summer camps that we offer or as a college student, because a lot of college students also haven't had a lot of time out in nature and we want to help them understand how to be um, comfortable in nature. Um, but, you know, your local nature center, your local county conservation board, if you're not in at Lakeside, you know, go to their programs and engage with their naturalists, um, you know, find ways to get your kids and grandkids outside and and again, parents are the best teacher uh, for a lot of kids. So, you know, take your fear of bugs and snakes and put it aside and go out and take your kids on a walk and, you know, see a bird that you've never seen before or find a plant that you've never seen before. It's so, it's so easy. You know, the, um, there's a iNaturalist that you can take your camera and shoot it at a point at a plant. It'll tell you what kind of plant it is. Yeah. Um, those things are super easy to guide your kids in exploration and it doesn't have to be right. I mean, you know, yeah. even, even if the plant is slightly wrong when you're talking about that, it's this plant versus that plant, getting them to be curious and engaged, I think is the best thing. You know, when I was first touring this facility with you and we were scoping it out for the, for the 
writer's retreat last year. Um, and I was just taken by the possibilities for creativity. And so oftentimes as, a, as an entity grows, you know, you have, to, oh, you have to get a conference room and a hotel and that sort of thing. I would just, I was either, we're gonna, we're gonna limit enrollment to this <clears throat> or we're gonna find right. another facility. And we were walking around here and I was just, I'd just fallen in love with the place. And what you talked about how nature grounds people. Tell, tell me about that. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the thing, too, that, you know, mental health being at an epidemic in, in this state and in this country, um, we know that time in nature reduces blood pressure. We know that time in nature calms you. Um, walking barefoot on the ground, the electrical stimulation of being um, in contact barefooted with nature on the ground is fantastic. And, but I almost can feel myself exhale when I walk around out here and being kind of hugged by nature and the trees and the lake um, is very soothing. And it really does take all the stresses and all the things that are pinging on your brain all the time. And just, you have to let go of it. Um, and humans are wired to pay attention to nature. Um, we evolved in nature. We evolved to understand the leaves are coming out, what's happening with the sap, what's going on with the, the birds and the things that I'm hunting. Um, and we've kind of pushed that away. And the more we can really immerse ourselves in paying attention and being in nature, it is so good for you, body and soul. And, you know, I, again, I think people come out to the writer's retreat and they're doing all this intense mental energy. And then they walk outside and it's like, Oh, it's pretty. And the, and you hear the birds singing and you hear the breeze in the trees and that kind of exhale is phenomenal for people. Um, and again, I just don't think people give Iowa enough credit for the natural spaces. And the more we can kind of bring back those natural spaces, I think the better off we are as, as humans, um, because we need those so desperately. So, uh, we need to advocate for those spaces, not just for water quality, but because we need them as humans. Absolutely, absolutely. Any more questions from the uh, from the audience? I let's see. John, did you have a question? Mary, Mary, you said something in chat, but I don't have access to it from my iPad. What what were you saying? And you'll need to unmute if you care to participate. Oh, Hello. there. We go. Hi. Hello, yeah, yes. uh, thank you. This has been great. Um, I've, I've been on Spirit Lake for 43 years. So everything that on there is so important. So what I put in the chat was about how the Spirit Lake Protective Association is really a good advocate for Spirit Lake. And uh, they bought some property, I think in Minnesota to prevent all the runoff we were getting from the pork producers and the contamination on the north end, which of course went all the way through. So there are things that can be done, but we just have to educate people. And also we need to let developers know not to touch wetlands. Uh, part of Anglers Bay and North Spirit Lake, I'm always worried that some developer is gonna come and wanna clean that up. We need that wetland. And Hale Slough, which is on the east side, Mid, mid Spirit Lake. I mean, that's been kind of cleaned up, but the DNR did that and they did a great job. So there is restoration in our lakes, just like there's regenerative agriculture, there is regenerative lake activity, but it takes a lot of people and a lot of money. And if we don't have watch guards, 
nothing will get done. And especially up at Spirit Lake, because there is so much prime land. And I love Mary because I remember when the regents wanted to get rid of Lakeside, and that would be painful. So yeah. keep up your great work. We'll see you in our, or see you in September. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Mary. Hey, and I was just going to add, you know, so one of the things that I think, again, and I, I brag on this community, even though I'm a transplant here, is um, when things like the North Shore of, of Big Spirit come up for sale and there are some, there's, you know, all of a sudden people are talking about, well, we want to protect Big Spirit. You know, the Okaboji Protective Association, which is largely around West Okaboji, you know, they're, they understand that this water body is also important. And so you see a lot of collaboration instead of being like, well, we're just West Okaboji and you guys figure out your own universe. Um, when somebody comes, this community rallies and it's like Spirit Lake and Center Lake and the East Lake um, organizations come together and they work together really closely. And, and, you know, I know that there's people on this podcast that have, have done that as well. I know Mike Delaney's was uh, kind of lurking out there, has done a good job of pulling folks together, but it's so important when these problems are bigger than any one organization or bigger than any one um, entity can take, take on. And I think that collaboration has been really successful up here in a way that um, is a model that we need to start trying to, to replicate elsewhere. And, and again, I realize that these are very big problems um, and the rivers are especially challenging, but I think there's, there's elements that we can replicate and start to see some success. So I'm a big believer in storytelling. Mm -hmm. You have writers and residents here. How does that do. program work? Yeah, so we have both an artist and writers and residents program. Um, they come for a couple of weeks and they immerse themselves in, in the landscape. But then they're also going to classes, meeting with interns and really kind of, I don't know, spending time to, to kind of get to know this place. Um, and it's always a phenomenal experience to see them after three or four weeks of really just becoming a student of algae or a student of, of ornithology. Um, they always like the birds because who doesn't? Um, but that, that moment of really just becoming a student again and seeing it through this, this scientist eyes and then the scientist seeing the world through the writer artist eyes has been really powerful. Um, I always worry about the environmental science students because, you know, they see all the things that are wrong and they don't always see the beauty and the awesome stuff and the stories. And so that, that moment where they get to really immerse in the, the beauty is really powerful for them. This is why you got into environmental science and for them to really, you know, spend some time with the artists and the writers is, is really a beautiful moment. One final question, how does one uh, apply to be an artist in residence or a writers in residence? So on our website, we have an application for the artist and the writers in residence. Usually that's being posted at the end of the year. Um, and then they're selected and, and notified um, in the early spring uh, months. And uh, yeah, we're, we're excited. And even if you're not a, in residence, uh, we welcome people to come up and spend some time at Lakeside. We, we have some winterized housing and people are welcome to come up and do a retreat and spend some time. Um, the lake has always got some different personalities. You know, the winter, she's a little bit more angry, um, but right now she's really beautiful and calm. So we, we encourage people to come up and get to know Lakeside and spend some time and, and just, you know, walk around the place. And the criteria for being in residence? 
someone who just wants to learn about nature and okay. yeah. That's build, great. build it into the practice. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been delightful. Thank you so much, Thank Mary, you, for all Thanks, you everybody. do. And we'll see a lot of you on this call in September. Thanks so much. Thanks, everyone.